Our text this evening is Psalm 34. And as, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of those psalms, once we go through, if you've read it, this, some of those verses that are familiar to you, uh, we'll, uh, they jump, they'll jump out at us as we go. Um, it's 22 verses. Uh, I won't do it justice, and so, but hopefully I'll give you some help to do your own meditating in this text. It begins in Psalm 34, verse 0. Again, that's how my text marks this one out. Uh, The title, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Now that's one of those things, again, a lot of times in reading the Psalms, you see something like that and race by, or maybe you stop and think a little bit about it. But it's helpful uh, to, I I really like getting the historical background on things. Um, This summer, I'll be teaching an online course on the book of Galatians. And uh, one of the things I'm thinking about doing is assigning a, 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 te- a paper due be at the first day of class. And one of those things students hate, but professors love. But uh, and the paper will be write a four or five pages, just a, a summary of the life of Paul. In other words, as we're going into Galatians, it's pretty bio, uh, biographical. Who is writing this? I want them to think about that. Well, Paul, well, well David, and I can tell already I'm going to be messing up. Uh, David wrote, wrote this psalm. And I want us to think about the background for a little bit. He tells us it's a psalm of David. When he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Well, that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 and following. Uh, so I'd like to get some of the background for us. I'll, I'll read maybe portions of this section. 1 Samuel 21. Now David came to Nob, or Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? Now I need to back up and really... I could find us backing back all the way up to 1 Samuel 1.1. But David, remember, had been serving in the court of, of Saul. David's already been anointed by the, the prophet who says, you're going to be the next king. But now he's been serving in the court. He's been a, a general for the king. But Saul is more and more threatened. The more successful Saul is, or David is, the more threatened Saul is. And he gets more and more angry with him. And so finally, David says to Jonathan... I think your father wants to kill me. And Jonathan says, no, he's not going to kill you. And he said, well, let's see. And they set up a test and it comes clear to Jonathan, he wants to kill David. And so he goes out and he tells David, you're right. You got to get out of here. And so he flees and that's where he comes. He comes to, to, to Nob, this uh, city. It's, it would be, if you look in a map, it's, it, it would be in the region of um, Mount Scopus, just north of Jerusalem. He goes there to the priest. Uh, this is where the tabernacle is at the time. And the first thing Dave, he wonders is, why are you alone? People didn't travel alone. And this is a general who's used to, you know, he has his troops with him. He says, why are you alone? David said to Ahimelech, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business. And so um, I've directed my young men to go to such and such a place. I don't know that there were any young men in such and such a place, but you know, here he is um, trying to come up with a story of why he's alone. And he said, um, verse 3, Now therefore, what, have you ha- what do you have on hand? 
give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest basically says, we're all out of bread except for the uh, bread of the table of showbread. That's holy bread. And, and David argues, uh, please, please, uh, we need some food. And so he gives it to him. Verse 6, so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there is no bread there but the showbread. Verse 7, now, and this is important in the story, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. He detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. He'll go back and report to Saul, but that's a part of the later story we won't get into. And then verse 8, David said, Is there not here on hand a, a spear or a sword? Now, can you imagine someone sent by the king on a mission who doesn't even take a weapon? I brought neither my sword nor my weapon for because the king's business required haste. And so the priest said, Sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there's none like it, give it to me. So he gets the sword of Goliath of Gath, the Philistine. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? He wasn't king, but they thought he must be. Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands, speaking of Philistines? David took these words to heart and was very much afraid. He thought, maybe he thought he'd go away and not be noticed. Maybe he thought he'd be recognized. Hey, if you're an enemy of the king, and this is often will happen, if you're an enemy of my enemy, I'll give you safe uh, harbor in my, my home. So when he realized he'd been found out, I wonder if it helped to trouble them that he came in with the Philistine sword of Goliath, whom he had killed. Verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them, feigned madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of, mad, of madmen that you brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so the king says, get rid of him. David therefore departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brother and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So there you have it. David's given the test to Jonathan. Tell me, I think your dad wants me killed. Well, let's check it, check it out. Dad wants you killed. So there he went. Now, you might notice, if you were really careful, at the beginning of the psalm of the title, it said he went to Abimelech. The, uh, Samuel says he went to King Achish. Well, that was probably his personal name, and Abimelech was more like a royal title. Abimelech means my father, the king. So that the dynastic kind of name. And again, maybe he, he thought, okay, well, I'll, they'll recognize everybody needs a good fighter. I'm a recognized warrior. I'm reminded of Herod the Great when uh, he had sided against Caesar in a, in a battle, and uh, Caesar won. And so that usually meant you lose. 
Uh, but he went to the Caesar and said, look, you know what a good friend I was to your enemy. Um, I'll be just as loyal to you. And, and Caesar bought it. And, he, and they got along great. And so maybe he's thinking something like that. Um, though he was famous for being a Philistine killer. It looks like they arrested him. It talk about, he t- mentions him being in their hands. They brought him to the king. And he feigned mental illness, and the king wanted nothing to do with him, and he was released. As I read that account, I'm reminded of a friend back in seminary there in the dorm, and it was not in a great neighborhood. It seems like seminaries rarely are. And so it was not in a great neighborhood, and, and he said he liked to take walks late at night in the neighborhood. And I said, this is an awfully sketchy place for you to be going out at walks alone at night. Are you sure about it? He said, yeah, I've got a strategy. It works every time. I said, what's that? Are you carrying something? Or He said, when I just walk down the street late at night, I talk out loud, very loud. And um, what I noticed is, as I'm walking and just talking out loud as I'm walking, people cross the street to the other side of the road. <laughs> and it worked. I mean, he was never touched. He, it, he pretended he was pulling a David here. So it's a very biblical strategy. And, and so that's what David was trying to do. It finally, you know, you know, maybe I can make him convince him I'm not a threat. Well, this psalm, again, based on what we saw, he, where did he escape from there to the cave of Adullam down there in the Judean uh, wilderness? And, and I think that's where the psalm is written. There in the cave with some people gathering with him, he writes the psalm. I've divided it into two sections in verses 1 to 10. Uh, are his testimony in verses 11 and following his teaching. So he begins and he says, uh, I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So he begins with a word of praise. And so these first three are some, verses are something like a hymn of praise to the Lord. And as he goes on, he, you notice he says, I will bless, my soul will bless, and then he invites them, magnify with me. This is meant to be, and, and later on he's going to say, let me teach you some things. This is meant to be, it's, it's, a, it's a hymn of private worship and public worship. And it's meant to be something that just uh, magnifies the Lord it's designed for meditation. And one of the things that really brings that out that you miss in the English text is this is an acrostic psalm. That means, uh, it's, 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 in this case, it's built on the Hebrew alphabet. Like Psalm 119 kind of does this in other passages in the, in the, in the psalms. Every verse begins with a, a, a letter of the alphabet, like, kind of like A, B, C, D, E. Not entirely perfect. There's one letter that's not and one letter that's repeated. Um, if I can give you an example uh, from someone who's uh, adapted this psalm into English to reflect that, uh, let me just give, give you a sense of what that might sound like. Always will I give thanks unto the Lord, and his praise shall ever be in my mouth. Boast in Jehovah, O my soul, for the humble shall hear of it and be glad. Come with me. And praise Jehovah. Let us magnify his name together. Diligently I sought. Do you see it's following 
A, B, C. And you know what? It does a couple of things. It, uh, it's, it's perfect for memorizing. Can you say, let's see, A, B, C, where am I next? And it's meant, and, and, and so the point is, with the acrostic, and it's, it's good for memory, and it's meant for meditation. Don't run past the psalm. You're supposed to savor the psalm and consider the psalm and meditate on the psalm. Well, he begins then and says, I will bless the Lord. Now, um, that right away, you might think, is he talking about in the future, someday I'll bless the Lord? In the, in the Hebrew, if I can and give you some of the uh, grammar here, uh, this has the idea, it's a, called a cohortative. It's like a command to self. In other words, he's making a deliberate decision. I am going to praise the Lord. Now here he has a good reason to praise the Lord. He's, you know, he's been rescued. But sometimes we just have to remind ourselves, I'm going to make a decision here to praise the Lord. But he's going to be delivered. God has rescued me. I am going to do right by him and recognize that and give him the praise that is due him. I will bless the Lord. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You know, sometimes we might say, well, I, I praise the Lord. And... Um, isn't that enough? That's kind of like when the husband, the wife says, why don't you ever tell me you, you love me? And, and he says, well, I did. When? Weren't you at the wedding? <laughs> well, he's saying, I'm going to continually praise and worship the Lord. So, yes, it's a specific incident, but that teaches me something about God's character and nature. And so I'm, going to be a, I'm, I'm choosing to be continually in the praise of the Lord. And so right here, just notice, worship is a choice. It's a decision. And so he's going to make a deliberate decision. I am, I am going to worship and praise the Lord. And secondly, just notice, it's good to remember God's mercies. He was rescued, and he says, I am therefore going to praise the Lord. And he didn't just rattle this off. Notice again, he put it into very careful poetry, A. B, C, D. And, 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 and from that uh, really gave us uh, a, a remarkable example of intentional, purposeful, continuous worship. Sometimes we have to choose to remember to worship God for his deliverances. And when I think of that, I think of John Newton. John Newton, of course, who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, he, was, he, he started off with such a wretched life and and after he got saved, he made a, a, a custom. Every year on the anniversary of his salvation, he set it a, a, a day, aside as a day of, of worship and prayer. You know, in other words, he would intentionally remember. He was purposeful and choosing to think of God's grace in his life. That's kind of what Paul's doing. And so, then, so in the first three verses, he, he shows us a, an example of praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise continually in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. When I praise, when I worship, when I share my testimony of God's grace, others benefit from it. It's one of the reasons we, the, the, the value of gathering is it gives us a chance to share with one another that others can share in our blessings. And so then he, he says, I'm going, he begins by saying, I'm choosing to worship the Lord. Then he calls out, you, magnify the Lord with me. 
Let us exalt his name together. Again, that word magnify is not that we're going to make God bigger, but that's kind of like taking a magnifying glass. I, I want to take a closer look. I'm going to lift him up. I'm going to make him look bigger. I'm going to get, make his reputation known. Come, let's exalt his name together. So you wonder, it must have been fun. Because there they are in a cave and David says, come, let us magnify, let's lift his name. I'll bet you that cave really would have resonated with the songs of, uh, of worship. Well, then there's a, a testimony of David in verses uh, 4 and following. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Notice how, the, how many I and me there are in there. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man um, cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles so, in ver- so he's, he started off generically I, I'm, gonna, I'm choosing to praise the Lord now he's going to be specific why? why are you choosing to praise the Lord? and he sa- tells us in verse 4 I sought the Lord and he heard me he delivered me of all my fears I just highlighted those personal pro- pronouns I sought the Lord He heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. It's personal. I think it's important when we think of our relationship with the Lord that it's personal. We can give our own personal uh, explanation and testimony of our relationship to the Lord, how he saved me. Yes, he died for sinners, but he saved me. And how uh, I came to faith and how I know his salvation. And so he begins by saying, I sought the Lord. And of course, that's the story. He gets specific. He sought the Lord, and God answered and delivered. That fills in some details in 1 Samuel. We kind of got the report kind of almost like looking in. Here's David, you know, with the Philistine sword, comes in, thinks he's got it worked out. All of a sudden, the Philistine soldiers surround him and take him to the king, and and, and he's thinking, it's over. Or is he? Is he thinking back to that time when, when Samuel poured the oil of anointing on his head and said, you're the next king? Is he thinking, Lord, if I'm the next king, I can't die here before the Philistines uncrowned. But he does tell us what he did is, I sought the Lord, he said. He heard me and delivered me. In verse 6, this poor man cried out. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And so as he was there, maybe not in chains, but in bond, in bondage, in his heart, he cried out to the Lord. He said, Lord, save me. Lord, rescue me. So I I, I see him almost like in a crucible, you know, that pot that just really, really heats things up. And what does he do? He fervently prayed. So Samuel didn't tell us that. David gives us the heart that was going on in that context. He was sweating and he was praying. Now, if I were thinking ahead, I would have said he was perspiring and praying. (laughs) And then verse, again, six is even more detailed. He said, I cried out as a poor man. Now, that doesn't mean he lacked money. The word poor there can mean afflicted. Or it can mean humble. And how humble can you get? He's hunted. 
in his own land. He's there alone. How desperate can you be as a Jew to seek protection from the Philistines? Among the Philistines. He, he, he has nothing. He had to go deceive the priest so that he can get some of the bread from the temple. The sword he got is one that came out of the temple. I'm a, I'm a poor man. I have nothing. And I cried out. And so as he was there as a prisoner, he said he cried out from the depths of his heart. And he says, and God heard. The Lord heard and delivered him. Now, if you think about it, the most, to me, the most natural thing the king would have done, mentally ill or not, he would have looked at David and said, the scoundrel. We had to run in fear after he killed our champion. He's continued to hunt down our people. Kill him on the spot. Kill him like a dog, okay? He's, a, he's, he's gone crazy with all this. Don't give him the dignity of a warrior. Just kill him. That would have been the most natural thing. But again, I think the Lord was moving. And one of the ways he moved was the king just said, just get rid of him. Send him away. I have to believe that most of the time that king would have said, kill him. Be done with him. But somehow God moved his heart and he said, just let him go. Just but I wonder in years to come when how often someone might, with a lot of courage, remind him, King, you know, David's uh, made another victory. Do you remember when he was standing before you, a prisoner, and you said, let him go? Oh, yeah, I do too. <laughs> what was I thinking? Well, the Lord moved his heart. In verse 5, it's kind of interesting the way it reads. Uh, it, it says, uh, they looked to him and they were radiant. And you think, Who? Who's looking? Who's radiant? What's going on here? It can, the way the verbs and all are taken, it can be more um, kind of a generic sort of thing, taken more as, a, as a, a kind of a present thing, a present tense. And uh, the ESV, I think, reflects this well when it says, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. See, when, when he was there in darkness, you know, you, know, you know the idea of someone having a dark face? And say, why are you so dark-faced? What's going on here? I can, I can remember actually taking, trying to wipe some of the wrinkles off of the forehead. What's, what's going on here? And he said, those who look to the Lord have a radiant face because they, they see the Lord and they're trusting him and yielding to him. And so he's talking about the joy of surrendering to the Lord. Then in verse 7, uh, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. David was all alone, surrounded by the hated Philistines, there awaiting the judgment of the king of the Philistines. But he wasn't alone. He was surrounded by the armies of heaven. The angel of the Lord encamps. That's a term used of military encampment. He was all alone, except for several million angels waiting to do the Lord's bidding. That's a good reminder for us sometimes. We're never, God's people are never alone. 
you may be wrestling with something at times in a, in a difficult time when you're feeling alone. Well, if you've got the Lord with you, you're not alone. You might be in a fearful situation. God, the, the angel of the Lord encamps around God's people. I've been, my heart is really heavy with what's been happening in Europe and the Ukraine. And um, I just have to think about the believers there that are trying to figure out a strategy. What are we going to do when we're overrun? How important it would be for them to remember the angel of the Lord and camps around his children. You're not alone. And nothing will hit happen to you except your good father allows it to happen. Verse 8, 9, and 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. By the way, you see women cannot trust. No, that's a generic term here. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Have you heard that phrase before? Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. What does he mean by that? Um, What does it mean to taste and see? Again, I think he's speaking in terms of personal experience. Don't let the Lord be something theoretical, something you read about in the book, something you hear about in a sermon, something you sing about in a song. Taste and see. But I also get the sense of maybe a... And by, isn't that weird? When you taste, that's your, that's, that's your taste. That's not seeing. But what he's saying is, experience the Lord with your mouth, with your eyes, even though he's invisible. So he's trying to express and experience the Lord, just like Jesus will say, unless you eat of my flesh, you'll have no part of me. What does he mean? He's, he's trying to use the sensory way of saying, it's a personal experience with the Lord. And it does suggest a savoring of the Lord. I read of a little girl whose mother apportioned her four jelly beans for the day. That's almost reportable to CPS. I'm not sure, but four. And so one, two, three disappeared quickly, and all of a sudden the little girl decided, realized she had one jelly bean left for the whole day. And it was described how first it was in her mouth and then out, and then carefully chewing off the outer crust and it took 45 minutes to destroy that final jelly bean. But the point is, she was savoring it. What I'm saying is, it takes time. Don't rush through. Taste and see. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. So often, God is seen as um, withholding blessing. Withholding kindness, unhearing of our prayer, taste and see, get to know him, draw near to him. And how is David able to speak like that? He's just come out of a near-death experience. Often, we taste and see the Lord in the hardest times of life. I remember... Richard Wormbrand's testimony of, of his imprisonment and torture uh, in communist prison for his faithfulness to Christ. 
And people asked him sometimes about what he saw in prison. He said, oh, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I saw the Lord in so many lives. Others would, could tell you what every chain looked like and every bar and how bad the food. He said, oh, it was beautiful because he saw God at work. Taste and see the Lord is good. He tells the saints, so fear you. Fear the Lord, you as saints. There's no want to those who fear him. Again, that fear is not be afraid, but that's that reverential awe that honors him, that submits to him. And those, it's accountability to him, but, but the sense of knowing his greatness. Those who know and trust his greatness have no want, no lack. Right? Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. Now, the young lions were, the most, were these ferocious beasts. What they wanted, they got. They stalked, they hunted, they ate. So others might go hungry, but not the lion. He says, well, the, the lions, the fierce and ferocious lions will go hungry before God's people lack. We'll have exactly what God wants us to have. Sometimes we'll feel we're lacking. But when we trust in the Lord, we have what he has. So he says, don't count on your strength. It will fail. Trust in the eternal, omnipotent, unfailing, always present Father. Then in verses 11 to 22, we see his teaching. So he's, he's begun with worship. Again, our response to God's deliverance should be a, a deliberate worship. When I th- thought of that as I was meditating on this passage and I, I thought about, you know, have you ever had a difference, a difficult time and you were delivered? Sometimes it's uh, you've come through a difficult surgery. You've come through a difficult illness. I remember a time I, I kind of had an accident uh, um, where I was going to school and I, <laughs> I knew the ice was going to be there because there was shade right there and it was cold. And I said, be very careful. I was doing 10 miles an hour. Um, and I was on my motorcycle because, uh, and, and I was poor. That's why I was on my motorcycle. That's why I was riding my motorcycle in the cold and wet winter. But as I hit the ice, my, my bike just slid out from me, beneath me, and I just started sliding right across the pavement. And I, you know, there's nothing you can do. You just kind of slide. And then I looked up, and here was this school bus, and he was having the same problem. And he was having a problem stopping. And unfortunately, we were heading to the same direct, heading towards each other. And I looked up, and the poor guy driving the bus, you could just see in his face the terror. He was thinking, I'm going to crush this fellow. By the mercies of God, and by then I'd come to know Christ as Savior, uh, I stopped like underneath the bump, you know, looked just at the edge of the bumper, looking up, and we looked at each other in the eyes, and uh, he, no one was hurt. So I got up, and, I, and the first thing I did is I pushed my bike over to the, to the curb, and I just sat on it, and I had a little worship sent, uh, session, just praising and thanking the God, for he delivered me. And, um, and, and so I was grateful for that. We should not forget to stop and worship. Well, then verses 11, 22 is his teaching. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, he says. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So he's gone from his speaking of his personal experience now to teaching. And he's gone from testifying to teaching. Uh, don't miss the lessons that I have learned. 
he sang to them. And the central theme of what he's saying is the fear of the Lord. Humble, submissive reverence for the Lord. Godly fear of the Lord is not mere lip service. It's a hard attitude that results in visible faith behavior. Notice that. So he says, come, listen, I'll teach you, the, uh, teach you the fear of the Lord. Remember in the Proverbs, Solomon's going to write later. His son, son is going to write later. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So he says, David said, let me teach you the fear, the worship of the Lord. You desire life, you love many days, you want to see good, you want you know, blessing. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He's not saying you earn God's favor. But what he's saying is this is the fear of the Lord. To know the Lord, to know his ways, and to obey and follow them. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So often people say, you want to have the good stuff? Lie, cheat, deceive. Seek yourself. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You want true blessing? Fear the Lord. And let it come out in how you live. You know, there's some people that they kind of have two different vocabularies. Church vocabulary, work vocabulary. And David would say, you're missing it. Fear the Lord. Always. In verses 15 and following, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. So in the first verse, verse 15, the emphasis in this whole section is that the Lord is attentive to his people and hears their cry. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their cry. And that can be a great comfort to know. I'm never out of sight. I'm always in care. Now if you're dishonoring the Lord, disobeying the Lord, the last thing you want to think about is his eyes are on you. But his eyes are on you. You know, nowadays parents have uh, all kinds of monitors. And, and you know, they can tell, exa- you know, from the you know, typical nursery today has about 18 different monitors. And it, it's, it's, I'm just making that up, but it's, you know, it's very attentive. That's nothing compared to the eyes of the Lord upon his people. And that's a good thing. But notice the contrast. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. God cares for, preserves his people. Those who aren't, those who rebel against him, he's against them. That kind of reminds me of a couple passages in the New Testament. James 4, 6 says, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Peter had a similar concept. Verse, 1 Peter 5, 5. In 1 Peter 5, 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, lest all of you be, yes, all of you to be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he's saying, you know, God, there, 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 he does distinguish the proud and rebellious face his resistance. Those who humbly seek his face find his grace. Just in passing, I'll note for you, you can write this down if, if you like. Peter seemed to like Psalm 34. 
verses, Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16a, the first half. Compare that to 1 Peter 3, verses 10 to 12. Or if you just went over to look at 1 Peter 10 to 12, 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12, you would notice that's in my Bible, all in italics. He's quoting from Psalm 34. So as David was delivered from the crucible of suffering and feeling alone and such things, Peter too treasured the words of the psalm. Verse 17 and 18. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Remember, that was his testimony. He cried out. It may have been the quiet of his heart, but he was crying out. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. God cares, God hears, God delivers. Notice, God delivers out of their troubles. Much as I'd like it to translate it otherwise, it does not say God keeps you from trouble. God delivers. Often it's God's purpose. He knows that in the time of trouble, that's when we grow. That's when we pray. That's when we seek his face. So he doesn't keep us from trouble, but he does say he'll deliver us from them. And then look at that wonderful statement. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Yes, God's people, those who fear the Lord, those who hunger and thirsty after righteousness can have a broken heart. He saves such as have a contrite spirit. It's interesting to me as I think right through these things about suffering and deliverance. Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons David, Peter liked this psalm. First Peter is a lot about suffering. And so maybe Psalm 34 for him was, that's my suffering psalm. Then verses 19 to 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Wait a minute. That guy that first shared the gospel with me said, if I trust Jesus, I'm going to have a happy life. My problems will be solved. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of the wall. Again, not deliverance from, not keeping us from, but deliverance from. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. God can protect. And so if you get a broken bone, well, that's uh, with God's permission. God protects even... From, from, he can keep us from all harm. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who, put, who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. None of those who trust in him shall be condemned. So the Lord will take care of us, even our physical care. So no illness and no harm will come upon us, except our Father approve it. The wicked don't have those promises. They don't have any hope. The Lord is their adversary. As Peter and James mentioned, he opposes the proud. That's a fearful thought. To have the Lord God, the eternal, the omnipotent, the all-holy, as your opponent and your adversary. Notice for the evil... It says that the evil evil shall slay the wicked. 
It's kind of like a boomerang. You live wickedly, it will come back and hit you. You live in wickedness, in wickedness you will perish. Kind of like you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. But then verse 22 again. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. None of them will be condemned in his presence. John 3, right? If you, those who believe, there's no condemnation. Whereas the evil will come and smash the wicked. The saints are redeemed and not condemned. So just some kind of closing thoughts, if I may. This psalm came out, came out of a, a terrible time in David's life. Great danger. He was at the mercy of a pagan king. But God. But God. David was preserved and protected by God's grace. God had chosen him to be the next king, and he's not going to let him perish. God had a plan for him. It reminds me of Stonewall Jackson. You know, the, his soldiers were marveled how he's so bold in battle, and he said, God has an appointed time for me. My task is to do my task, and in his time, he'll take me home. That's true for all of us. That does, that's not grounds for recklessness. In his case, he was in war. <laughs> he had to put himself in the way of danger. But for us, it's not a grounds for recklessness, but it's a ground for peace. God cares for his people. He had a, he'll accomplish his purpose for us. And even when someone, one of God's people dies before what we would think would be the right time, God has a purpose in that too. Out of his horrible experience came a psalm of worship and instruction. And the fact, again, that he made it acrostically, made it to be, he intended us to meditate on it and to, um, to memorize it. And it and, and suggests it's even there's, a, there's an order to it, you know, because you can think through A, B, C. So from that, I would say in the darkest of times, trust the Lord that encamps around his people. He will not forsake you. He will not for, You may not see the answer. You may not see how he's going to pull it off. God encamps around his children. What do you do in a time of trouble? Pray. Call out to the Lord. And it doesn't even have to be audible. He didn't say to King Akish, would you mind, just a moment, I want to take a knee here and, and cry out to God. It was one of those heart prayers. Oh, Lord, what have I done? Here I am. I'm in the hands of the Philistines. Pray, call out in trouble. Notice to praise publicly. He's talking to people in his praise. Join me. Learn from me. So that others may rejoice and learn. It's a wonderful thing when we pray for one another and we can share in answered prayer. That's a joy. And we learn from it as well. Learn and teach others from your experience. You know, when you've come through something, okay, what are the lessons to learn? And then kind of a final point after contrast back and forth. Make sure you're the Lord's adopted, not as adversary. Not as adversary. And the importance of knowing and trusting the Lord in all times.
I'd encourage you, take this psalm, as we've, I, we've, raced, we've raced through this psalm, and maybe find a phrase, find a verse that you especially want to grab onto. Taste and see, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Draw near to him and find it, or, or one of the others. Father, thank you for sparing David. Thank you for answering his prayer. Lord, thank you for allowing him to get into that pit of despair so that he might see your hand and learn and so that we might see your hand and learn. Father, how I pray that we would have hearts ready to worship, responsive to your mercies, aware of your mercies. And Father, I do pray, any here or anyone who hears these words, that perhaps those very words, taste and see, speak to a heart that is yet to personally know Christ as Savior. Father, if that's the case, I pray those Simple words, taste and see, would awaken a heart to be hungry for the God of grace and mercy. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.